Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Technologies is also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Have to say, quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas and can use a hand, you can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect. ExpressVPN can assist, even though 96% of stats are made up on spot. ExpressVPN does give a 100% guarantee via their 30-day back money guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say today I'm interviewing Brett Lamb, who is the CEO of Discovery Experts. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Brett. Hey, thanks, Topping. It's good to be here. Absolutely. It's been a lifetime. <laughs> and then, out of curiosity, going back a couple of years, how did you first get into the whole legal whole industry? Because I know it's a pretty diversified in terms of all the things they cover, all the areas. What first interest you, and what was your first role? Well, I went to Baylor Law School, so I got sucked into the Dallas market after law school and uh, started at a litigation firm called Cooper & Scully, just doing general commercial litigation. Did a lot of construction work, though, and I really liked working with um, construction companies, helping them with their disputes. Yeah, my dad was an architect growing up, so I've heard the horror stories about all the different things that go on from, you know, here's the design, then you go to, okay, we're going to construct this. Wait, that doesn't look at all what we were looking for. All those materials are wrong, so a lot of people don't realize there's a whole plethora of things that can go wrong during those processes. And, of course, if someone doesn't properly, you know, man ups to the situation and you know, do the right thing, you got to, of course, do litigation. Yeah, there tends to be a lot of litigation around construction projects. Just there's so many moving parts and so many different aspects and a lot of money involved. So that usually begets a great deal of litigation. Oh, absolutely. As, especially nowadays, nothing about construction is cheap. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And out of curiosity, so that first law firm, do you have a kind of a case that came really inspired you or really kind of stood out as your favorite moment or something kind of stood out in particular? You know, I think it was just getting my feet wet. I worked with some really good attorneys that also gave me a lot of leeway. So at a very young uh, professional age, I was trying lawsuits, uh, doing jury trials, uh, doing a lot of hearings and Usually when you're in your first or second year practicing, you don't, you don't get anywhere near the courtroom unless you're carrying a more experienced attorney's briefcase. And I just had the privilege of getting thrown into the fire, and that really just gave me um, a real passion for going out and pursuing my client's claims and defending anyone coming after them. That's awesome. There's a lot of variables in those types of situations. What, what part of that do you find or did you find the most fascinating? Because I know those things – each one of those things are like a huge category in and of themselves. You know, I think the, the thing you learn as you go forward is when you first step in a courtroom, you're so nervous about whether you know all the procedures, you know all the law. As you get more comfortable, it's more about a understanding people. Mm -hmm. So you need to understand where the judge is coming from, become a really good listener so you can read what um, doubts the judge might have about your argument. And then also reading your jury, 
you start with a panel of 60 potential jurors and you got to weed those down to the 12 that are going to decide your client's fate. And so going through that whole process and trying to read which jurors are going to be best um, to understand the issues at hand and make a good decision. That's got to be so complex, especially because I know a lot of folks, at least, you know, it's kind of a kind of like a pulling the teeth mentality where a lot of people don't want to necessarily go to jury duty, whereas a lot of people, other people realize there's, you know, it's their civic duty. And then you have to realize, kind of analyze which ones are going to be the best for your clients, which ones are going to be actively engaged in the actual process of the litigation. I really, really want to uphold the American value system of, you know, doing the right thing. And they're not going to be, you know, multitasking on their phone, even though I'm sure courts say you're not supposed to have a phone during junior duty. It's like, that's how it's hard as far as finding out who's going to pay attention and be invested in the whole process. I mean, any tricks to the trader, is it just kind of interviewing each of the jurors individually and getting to know them, just kind of gauging their reaction? Or what's that process like? Well, you, you get a jury questionnaire, and so sometimes from their background, you can kind of guess at how attentive they may or may not be, but I've seen the whole gamut. I had a week-long trial in Fort Worth, um, and it was in their county courts building, which is beautiful. It makes you feel like Perry Mason because it's an old building, and you have the actual, you know, all the woodwork, and it just makes you feel like a, a real lawyer. Is it by the old J.C. Penny headquarters? Like the uh, same street? You know, I don't know. I'm not sure, but it's it's right there in downtown Fort Worth. Is it what color is building by chance? It's it, that red granite. Oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. as right. I know the city of Fort Worth moved into the old Pier One headquarters uh, a few months ago, but yeah, I, I drive past that building all the time. It's beautiful. It looks yeah. so historic. I haven't gone inside yet though. It's great, but I had a a case. It was a week long jury trial over masonry, which is oh, really? not the most exciting subject matter. But it was amazing to see the range of reactions from the jurors. I had some jurors that, like, you could tell they were taking their civic duty very um, personally, and they were attentive, taking notes. When the trial was over, they came and shook uh, my hand and my client's hands. Um, And then there was one juror on that jury that literally slept every single day. Oh, gosh, really? And the judge (laughs) never said anything to him. What? I thought that – was that person just intentional? Because I know a lot of people – I forget if it's illegal or just unethical. They try to get dismissed from jury duty, yeah. and there's certain things you could say or do. I can't believe the, the judge didn't realize he was sleeping. I don't know if the judge – I'm sure the judge probably realized. He just didn't do anything about it. So, yeah. So I, I saw the whole range of different types of jurors in that case. And out of curiosity, what about – what was the dispute about in terms of the masonry, in, if you're allowed to go into the details? Was it like the different – uh, inappropriate material used for it or the design wasn't right? Or? It was really just aesthetics. Mm-hmm. You know, one, the owner thought that the masonry should look a certain way mm-hmm. and the contractor had, you know, built it the way they asked and then redone it multiple times. Ooh, yeah. And uh, the owners sued them and the jury didn't buy the owner's argument. They ended up giving them nothing. Oh, really? Um, but it was, it was a, Relatively boring case if you're a third party. It was very important to my client who was the contractor. Of course. Especially a lot of those contractors, you know, a lot of them are mom-and-pop shops. they got to fight these cases because, you know, they have to get paid appropriately because, of course, they have employees, overhead, and as you were saying earlier, construction is it's a big game. There's a Correct. lot of risk. Yeah. yeah I, can't, I can't imagine. I, I don't know. Personally, I'd be fascinated just to, to look over all the intricacies because, I mean, those little details, especially construction, architecture, I mean, there's literally, it's really a trillion, I don't know if it's a trillion, but it's really a billion dollar industry where you're just the designer aesthetics of 
a building or a store makes the hugest profound impact on the consumer experience or the customer experience. I mean, I can't imagine, I just read one of the books, uh, Sam Walton from Walmart, uh, the founder of Walmart, and he, he goes into the kind of logistics of how they plan out the stores and everything. And it's an art and a science to all those things. So I'm always fascinated about, you know, just that little, that little masonry, just a little bit of skew or just, if it's not visually appealing or attractive, just that alone could have an impact of the perception of the quality of the business inside the building or what have you. It's, it's a fascinating scientific process. Yeah, that's one of the things I like best about um, working in the construction industry is you work with some people that may not come across um, as flashy. They're not going to be wearing a three-piece suit and yeah. you know, $2,000 shoes, but people that work in construction are very smart. And for one of these large-scale projects to turn out the way it's supposed to, it has a lot of moving parts, so it takes a lot of different talents and skills and and just general intelligence to get it all done. Oh, absolutely. And all the time and all the people, it's it's probably one of the most difficult communication chains to keep in terms of the whole process to ensure the final product is delivered as designed or as intended. There's so many variables. There's so many suppliers. There's... I mean, just lumber alone, you have different quality, different grain, and different different shave, different, I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into it, and it could make or break the project, sometimes literally, literally I guess, if the wood isn't strong enough, too, but. <laughs> Absolutely. And then where do you go after that first law firm? So I was there for a short time, and then ended up getting recruited to go to a much larger law firm. Um, it was a full-service law firm, but I was still doing civil trial work. I think that move to the larger law firm gave me more of a, con- a focus on construction litigation. I still did any type of civil litigation, you know, business on business, um, environmental even. Oh, really? But I would say at least 60 to 70% of my work was construction related, which construction is very complicated as far as the litigation goes. There's a lot of unique laws that you have to understand. You have to understand how construction contracts work. And on top of that, the longer you practice, the more you start understanding what your experts are talking about. And you start getting the the construction process um, in your head better so that you can ask better questions and understand where the real dispute lies. I I can imagine there's a lot of industry-specific laws, too. What what are the most – I know there's probably thousands, but are there a couple kind of – top laws that people accidentally break or that are usually brought up in the disputes throughout that process? Well, it's not so much about breaking a law. I mean, the laws that really affect the contractor doing their job are just local building codes for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's more about different contractual rights. So something that you'll see that varies by every state is indemnity. Mm-hmm. The owner will always ask the contractor to indemnify them. The, then the general contractor will ask their subcontractors and there's, it varies by state as to how that indemnity can be enforced and how much indemnification each party can actually get. And actually, what's that mean? Because I'm in layman's terms. So indemnity just protects a one party from the other party's actions. So really what they're trying to do is protect themselves from job site injuries. Like the owner doesn't want to be sued if someone's injured on the job site. The general contractor doesn't want to be sued if it's a particular subcontractor who had someone injured. So indemnity is just one risk mitigation methodology that you can use in the contract to try to protect yourself from liabilities that you may have no control over. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I, so 
especially when you're on a job site, a lot of people don't realize it's not just, you know, one or two people. It's not just the architect and the constructor. It's the contractor, the subcontractor, and the sub-subcontractor. This, it's a lot of jobs that need to be done on those sites. There's a lot of people involved, a lot of businesses involved just in, in one project. It's not just one business. Yeah. I've been involved in projects where they literally have thousands of workers on site. Oh, my day. gosh. Thousands every day? So it's it's just mind-boggling to think of the coordination that has to take place to get everyone to be doing what they're doing in the way they should be doing it and in a safe manner. Absolutely, and then of and just kind of communicating that, communicating that constantly with, with the architects, designers, and people actually you know on the site, making sure you use them the right materials, putting them in the right spots. I mean that as probably one of the largest, most complex orchestrations in business. Yeah. Then from there, did you move on to Austin, I think? So I um, was at Gardier Wynn for many years and left to do a healthcare startup. Oh, yeah. And the healthcare startup um, sold within three years. So then I went to work for one of our old clients at Gardier, Austin Industries, and was general counsel there for five years. And that's probably one of the biggest in, biggest in, at least definitely in Texas, that I've ever heard of, too. Yeah, Austin's a very – it's a large company. They're usually about – Three to four billion in revenue per year. I, I think in DFW they're definitely the biggest, but they they build nationally as well. And ironically, they're headquartered in Dallas, not Austin. <laughs> it originally was Austin Brothers yeah. Construction back <laughs> in the eighteen hundreds. So that was that was one of the things that made me laugh when I, someone first ta- told me about the business a couple years ago. They're like, yeah, we should do a drop off at Austin Industries. I'm like, well, I mean, we usually work with companies that are headquartered in Dallas, you know, DFW. Yeah. Like, they are. I'm like, what? Why? I used what? to get that all the time. <laughs> You know, I'd say, I work for Austin. Oh, you're in Austin? No, I'm in Dallas. Oh, so you don't work at the corporate headquarters? No, I actually <laughs> do work at the corporate headquarters. <laughs> but a lot of those fun companies, uh, name it at the founder. Yes. Makes, makes sense, though. Absolutely. And then, out of curiosity, what was it like working on some of those larger, more complex projects? I mean, I think you were telling me a little bit earlier, the contracts are very unique in terms of, it's one of the few industries I've heard of where it's common in the construction industry to have a cost plus in terms of contractual, where... Can you explain that for the folks a little bit? Sure. So in construction, like traditionally you would see in the past lump sum. So um, you're going to build this. The owner is going to supply all the plans and specifications, and the contractors are going to bid it and say, we'll we'll build it for X amount of money. Mm -hmm. The problem with that methodology is on these large, complex projects, it's very hard for a contractor to, to figure out what all the costs are at the front end there's multiple reasons for that. Um, one is usually the design is never 100% completed. It's going to be evolving throughout the project. Mm-hmm. So that tends to change costs. Also, if, if a project is going to take five, six, seven years to build, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, costs can change during the project. So on the, on the more complex contracts, you see some form of what's called a cost plus, And that's where the general contractor, they bid their fee. Like we're going to do it for, Four percent of the total construction costs, and here's what our overhead is. That's all your people, your offices, your trucks, and they're bidding more on that. And then their job is to try to get the costs in line with some type of estimate. Mm-hmm. And so you'll have like guaranteed maximums. Like, okay, we can we're going to do this project for this fee. Mm-hmm. Owner, you're going to pay all the costs, but we're going to guarantee it's not going to exceed five hundred million. Yeah, or whatever the number may be. That's gonna be so complex. I mean, just building this table alone, I did it took me about a year, 
and there's hundreds of, uh, maybe dozens of pieces. I can't imagine what it's like building a stadium or building an office building where, especially over the long term, you have thousands of suppliers across the globe, and, and pricing is always changing. It's one of the most volatile things, especially like when COVID hit. I mean, there's a joke uh, I saw on Facebook where, you know, fa- the original Fast and Furious, they, the plot of the story was they're stealing semi-trucks full of the VCR TV combos, and they replaced it with lumber, and they go, you know, the newest movie will come out soon. Oh, yeah. Because the cost of lumber during COVID just skyrocketed ex- exponentially. And just getting stuff, just availability. Yeah. And one thing to remember is contractors always agree to a schedule. So they'll have a date they're supposed to get the project done by, mm-hmm. but if you can't get certain materials, that makes it hard to meet your schedule. Absolutely. That, that was astonishing how it just hit all the industries. Like we had some wireless access points where we – Placed an order, I believe it was, was it March? It was about March, right when COVID hit. But it, you know, all the factories shut down, so we didn't get them for about thirteen months. It's still happening. It's, it's astronomical. Is it still pretty, still pretty common in the construction industry too? I, and I can't figure out why, but there's still major supply chain issues, like and just standard stuff. Like I was at a friend's house last night, who he's building a new house. Mm-hmm. He can't get his refrigerator, so he had to put in a different kind of refrigerator just to have something in the home for now until the actual refrigerators he bought come in. Really? Yeah. It's it's insane. I almost wonder if the whole economy is going to shift or most businesses are going to shift to a just-in-time inventory, like, you know, which kind of made Dell technology so famous back in the day where for the folks who aren't aware, instead of having a business process where you make a bunch of products to put in a warehouse, you wait. Instead, you only build a product once it's paid for and ordered by by the consumer or a distributor. Yeah. And there's just so much risk with COVID. I wonder, a lot of these companies are making more money producing less products, which isn't good for the end users. I'm wondering how that's going to affect inventory levels of all these different products, or or if maybe it is a combination of that and just the supply chain issues of maybe that refrigerator requires this one component that's only made in this one country, and they're still catching up with production. So it's... It's revolutionary how it's disrupted every business vertical that I could possibly think of. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I've read lots of articles about it, and they seem to say different things as to why we're still, you know, we're almost three years post the start of the pandemic and why we're still having supply chain issues. Yeah. I mean, I I guess some of them are a little bit more direct. Like automotive, I was driving – and I saw like a whole field of, I did a ballpark count of like 500 Chevy uh, Tahoes. And then a couple of days later, I read an article. It's like, oh yeah, they're all, you know, they need this particular semiconductor because without it, the vehicle won't actually work. Yeah. So, and in Ford, Ford the most bizarre issue was uh, two months ago, maybe they had all these completed trucks, but they weren't delivering them because the supplier for the Ford emblem badge for the front grill, there's that supplier was so far behind. They weren't fulfilling the orders. Wow. So I, which I mean, that I would just I would just think Ford would think the 3D printer logo. I I don't know. I know logos are very very important for businesses, but it's astonishing that in terms of that particular instance, that was the Achilles heel of the delivery schedule for these you know yeah. fifty to hundred thousand dollar trucks. And it's just it's gotten to the point where most businesses you have multiple suppliers, just like construction. You've got hundreds of companies that come together to build a car. Traditionally, I think. Tesla's a little different. They have mostly in-house manufacturer production supply, but it's astonishing to see how all these businesses, it's the the downside of globalization and working as a team. You, there's a lot of benefits to it, of course, but you're also more at risk when it comes to these once-in-a-lifetime 
phenomenons. Yeah. That's an interesting intersection between technology and construction is they stopped building semiconductor plants in the United States in the mid-90s. Yeah. And now, within the last three years, there's numerous projects. In fact, my old employer, Austin Industries, is building several uh, chip plants as we speak. And a combination of some tax breaks and robotics, the fact that the reason all the chip manufacturers went overseas was for cheap labor, well, now there's not a whole lot of labor used in the the production process so they can move back to the United States. So it'll be interesting to see um, once all this construction is completed how it changes the supply chain, at least domestically. I think it'll help out a lot. I know a lot of folks don't realize in terms of like, a risky business, building a fab or a fabrication center for semiconductors is one of the most cost-intensive things you could possibly do as a business. Like, before this phenomenon, companies like NVIDIA were moving away from manufacturing their own and being more of a design company. And now there are, a lot of them are switching. I know Intel's building some fat. Uh, I think they're building one in New York, upper New York. For we got Intel. several going in in Ohio. Yeah. So one of our clients, Gilbane, is building uh, those. Texas Instruments has. Yep. They just completed one in Richardson, and then they're building a new one up in Sherman. Um, Austin Industries is building those. Samsung has one going in Taylor, Texas. Yeah, so there's a I lot. That. It's it's a huge investment, and it, it's I think it's a smart move. It was unfortunate that due to a lot of I would argue politi- a mix of politics and culture, which increased the cost of labor in the United States and moved a lot of those prohibit made the jobs prohibitive or they would lose money. Yeah. So the businesses, they had to move in order to stay in business. But thanks, to, thankfully with the robotics and the, if you're building the semiconductors in tax-friendly states, it's a lot more economical to make them now. And my suspicion with pretty much nearly all the products Americans are buying these days, it's very technologically, it's te- technically, it, the products are more technical than not, I feel like. Yeah. And every electronic that people use has some semiconductors in it. (laughs) So I think long-term, I think it's going to be a phenomenal investment because it's it's such such a heavily used technology. So I think it's, it's a smart move long-term, but like we were saying earlier, I mean, I can't imagine the construction cycle for that in terms of the years to produce, because these, and a lot of people don't realize these things need to be built so perfectly because just one little thing of dust or one human hair destroys a lot of these electronics. Yes. It's like a clean room when you're taking apart a hard drive or mm-hmm. doing data recovery. I mean, so uh, what's the construction cycle like for some of these plants? Is it is it like a five year plan or? They actually imagine? get built a lot quicker than you'd think. That, oh really? That one, uh, the new Texas Instruments one in Richardson, I, I was done in about eighteen months. Really? That's astonishing. The construction itself is you know it's pretty simpler, simple because it's just a big box. Yeah building itself and really what takes you a long time is all the specialized hvac equipment and, and the where the production line is is a clean room so you have all the technical specs that have to go along with that that's that, that is going to be that's that's astonishing 18 months that's, i don't know if that's a record but it sounds like one it's, it's a, amazing how fast some of these construction projects can go uh my old company austin built the toyota headquarters up here oh, yeah, in frisco that was that was an 18-month project. That's it? Yeah. That's astonishing. That's one of the biggest headquarters in DFW. I drive by it all the time, and a lot of people don't realize Toyota moved out of California, I believe, in 2019, yeah. 18. 
and they came to Texas. So Texas now has a couple. They got Tesla in Austin. You got Plano. Yep. I mean, Texas is a place to be. But that that is one of the most beautifully designed headquarters that I've ever seen. And it's one of my favorite things is when you're on the highway on the backside of the of the Toyota headquarters. They actually were brilliant enough to design it so that there's a giant LED screen. It's probably what maybe a hundred yards. And it just constantly does different Toyota commercials where you show you different yeah. Toyota products. I'm like, that's brilliant. Because so many companies would just, you know, my dad always kind of growing up, he had a disdain for the suburbs where it's just a copy-paste. All the buildings are the yep. same. You know, the size of the buildings have no windows. It's just a flat wall. Like, right. a lot of headquarters, you know, it's a, it's a highway. They would just do a slab of, you know, cement. But they had this beautifully designed, and some, it looks like it's just so seamlessly integrated into the backside of the building. It's just that beautiful panel. And they also have the race tr- or the mini track in the back too, so you yeah. kind of see them testing stuff. It is one of the best designs I've seen lately. It's cool. Yeah, and it, construction is a good industry to be in. Every two, I swear, every two weeks another company's moving here. <laughs> DFW, it's it's great if you're building corporate headquarters. They they are moving here like crazy. Oh yeah, I know. Um, Illinois-based uh, Caterpillar about six months ago announced they're moving to Irving. Yeah. Uh, right now they're in the I forget what you call it, but it's old. It's a really big, beautiful, I believe it's granite office building in Irving. It's one of the tallest ones there. But they have that's where I saw their logo a couple of days ago. But just based on that company's size and span, I wouldn't be surprised if they designed an independent headquarters for the next 12, 24 months just to house all their employees as they're all moving employees to DFW. That wouldn't surprise me. And then out of curiosity, what inspired you to first start your own company? Because that's a that's a big leap. And then tell us a little bit about, you know, what does your company do? So I think I've always kind of had an entrepreneurial spirit, um, but I kind of did the risk adverse thing and was part of a big law firm. Mm-hmm. You know, lawyers go to big law firms and it's, it's pretty much uh, a guaranteed job all the time because there's always legal work and you're part of a big firm, so it just kind of feeds on itself. Mm-hmm. But I always had that uh, desire. But I really would like to say I was smart and planned all of this out, but it's really more like a, a God thing that, he just put something in front of me I wasn't expecting, and that was um, this business kind of fell on my lap. So what we do is e-discovery, and for your listeners that aren't familiar with that, is whenever there's a lawsuit, and especially commercial lawsuits where it's a business suing a business, the lawyers need evidence. And the evidence is usually in some type of document, whether it's a contract or it's an email or a letter or a Slack message, or something like that, that can prove one side of the case or the other. And when I first started practicing law, that was on paper. So I would show up at trial with a couple of banker's boxes with all my exhibits. Oh, my gosh. And I used to, when I was a young associate, you used to go out to clients' offices and just go through files and make copies and provide copies to the other side. And it was a tedious process. Now everything's electronic. Thankfully, we don't <laughs> use paper documents anymore. And you can just do the control F, right? But that will. And here's the interesting thing, though, because we don't use paper anymore, people make more documents. So the the data size for any particular cl- case has probably increased ten times for what it was when I first started practicing law. Oh wow, really? And so sifting through all that data, storing all that data, managing it become a cottage industry in itself. And what I discovered, um, both being a trial lawyer and then being an in-house counsel that's paying the bills for this these e-discovery vendors, 
is it's a frustrating process both for the trial counsel and for the company that's dealing with e-discovery in the fact that there doesn't seem to be a lot of connection between the vendors and what the clients need. And so my business partner was an e-discovery consultant. She didn't actually sell the software or do the hosting. Mm -hmm. And she did a great job, but when I was at Austin, I mentioned to her that, hey, look, you're doing a great job and you're really helping our company out a lot. But the problem is we're still dealing with vendors that have very poor customer service mm -hmm. and don't look out for us on a cost basis. It feels like they're trying to make a fortune off this one case instead of building a relationship with us for all of our cases in the future. And so those discussions led to us starting Discovery Experts. So we, we provide the software and the hosting space for the data, but we also have experts. So, and we like to say that all of our experts have superpowers mm -hmm. that they bring to our clients to help them manage the discovery so it gets the attorneys to the documents they need to win the case at the same time managing the database to reduce costs as much as we possibly can because we're here to build a relationship with the client not make all of our money on one case yeah our saying is once we we work with the client we want them to give us all their work forever because it's about a relationship and we want them to know that they can trust us and we're looking out for their best interests Absolutely. That's key. I always tell people when I meet them, I remember reading the art, I referenced the article by Forbes a couple, I believe it was Forbes a couple years back. I say, would you rather work with someone for, you know, two years, which is the average sales cycle or life cycle of a sales rep, or would you rather work with someone for 20 years? Like yeah. what side of the equation would you rather, would you rather be on? The unfortunate thing about e-discovery is just unavoidable. Mm. It, every piece of commercial litigation, you have to deal with the electronic files. And so that cost is always there. So it's just how much cost it is there. And also how much of your attorney time are you wasting? Because mm -hmm. if you talk to the attorneys that are representing these clients, they have a lot of frustration with trying to find their documents, trying to manage the software. Um, it's, it can be a, a tedious process. And all the time they're billing the client. That adds up. And so if we can make the lawyer's use of time more efficient by our expertise, not only with the client, but with the industry and the software. That's our goal. That's, that's the best thing to do is always put the customer first. Exactly. You do that, your business will grow. We, we worked very long and hard on our mission statement, but our mission statement is um, discovery can be painful, expensive, and confusing, and we own the unavoidable so our clients can prevail. I love that. That's great. So as a team, we came together and developed that mission, and it kind of just it tells the story of what we do, you know, sets the stage of what the problem is and how we help solve it. And then what was the biggest challenge when you first started? What, I forgot. What year, what year did you first start the company? We started in 2020. So we started in the middle of pandemic. Vaccine wasn't out yet. People were still, you know, everyone was working remote. Um, but we just felt the pull. We felt like clients were pulling us into the marketplace because it was a need that needed to be met. And I'm thankful to say every client that we've started with sends all their work to us and is still using us. Uh, we haven't lost a client yet. And um, our people, we built the most amazing team. And our people really build relationships with our clients and with their outside counsel. 
And once they start working with us, it's very hard for them to consider ever working with anyone else. That's phenomenal. That's that's literally the American dream. So that during the time when most people were afraid, you guys went for it and you started the company. That's that's even more impressive. I love that. It's been a wild ride, but it's been very rewarding. And like I say, uh, we've been blessed with the, the greatest team anyone can ask for. Uh, we're up to 13 people now, and every one of them has their own superpower. Yeah. And we like to say everyone has a run towards the fire mentality. Mm-hmm. Litigation can be stressful. There seems to be emergencies all the time. And our people, instead of, like, you know, finding something else to do when there's a problem, they all run towards it and figure out a way to solve it. Those are the best people you can surround yourself with, the people who are brave enough to do the right thing and go out and hustle without – even having to be asked, the customer just knows you're going to do it because that's who you are. Yeah, we're, we've been very blessed, and I just I thank God every day for the team he's brought us because that's what really makes us great. What's been the biggest in terms of expanding the team? Are, are they old colleagues that you kind of just stay in touch with over the years, or how's that process been like in terms of growing the team size? You know, none of them are old colleagues, but, well, I guess one of our, our VP of consulting at Cat Meyer was someone that Lauren has worked with for years. And she is amazingly talented. She was a litigator with Jones Day, which is a really large national, international law firm. Uh, and she's been a real catalyst for our growth. But other than that, it's just been about relationally. We'll have someone we know that we trust that will refer us to a person. and Or it'll be someone that we worked with before at another vendor that stood out. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just kind of how we've just grown as this organization. That's a great way to do it, too. Yeah, we, we haven't been, like, you know, hiring headhunters and just, you know, randomly cold-calling people. It's been all about relationships, which has been really rewarding. Absolutely. It's a lot less headaches, too, because I've gone both paths in terms of growing the company where I've, inter- you know, I've posted li- ads on LinkedIn, I've interviewed some folks, and there's always that discrepancy between what's on their resume and what's their real-world skill set when you actually put them in a, a POC or an actual physical test environment, and... I find just the actual recommendations are a lot more accurate when it comes to those descriptions. And you just inherently have that trust built already because it's coming from someone you've, like you said, you've worked with for you know years upon years. You already have that trust established with them. Yes, absolutely. What's been the biggest challenge growing the company as you guys have been going throughout the past, growing throughout the past couple of years? I think our biggest challenge is just building structure from scratch. Mm-hmm. Our business is a very tedious business. So you have to have a lot of checklists really sound processes and procedures. And so I think, so we, every year we've kind of had a theme and 2022 has been the year of structure. Mm-hmm. Cause when we were small, it was just, we would just pound out cases and we do a great job of it, but we didn't really have a set way that we did things. Mm-hmm. So 2022 recognizing the growth, we've really systematized the way we do things and it's great what our people have done. And it's been a team effort. Everyone on our team has developed a part of these processes. And so now we feel really confident going into 2023 that we have great systems in place. We're always going to keep improving them. We're never going to just rest on our laurels and say this is perfect because it's not. Uh, But we think we have systems that are better than most. And the most important thing, they allow us to do an amazing job for our clients. Absolutely. That, that is probably one of the biggest keys. I've, I've read dozens of books and listened to dozens of documentaries about business, and complacency is the enemy. 
you're not constantly striving to improve and try to grow and try to serve the customer even better than you did the day before, then it's just the business will not be there in the future. It's just shown time and time again. Yeah, we're striving to create a culture where everyone from the, the you know the highest position to the lowest position can bring up issues they see in our in our organization because it's the people on the front lines that are going to notice like hey this the way we design this system is not working or this is broken and we want them to have the freedom to bring it up you're not being a complainer you're not being a whistleblower you're just helping us be better and so every day we want to go to work learn something new and just get that much better that's the best method that's the method best methodology to have i mean it I know it's kind of an older book because I believe Sam Walton, I believe the book was written in 1993, but they had the same policy where every employee could come to the chairman and they could give their voice. And they, the chairman would actually listen to them. And then they also had the incentive where any employee at any of the stores, if they came up with like an idea that helps save the company money, they would get a bonus and a recognition at the end of the year. Wow, that's and great. I think, I think he said they saved within – when they first started that, within a couple of years, they already saved $5 million. Wow. I mean, and some of them were just, you know, simply unique ideas. One of them was uh, a gal one of the stores had a good idea where they're talking about the distribution of the fixtures, so like the shelves and, you know, at Walmart. And, you know, they were paying, I believe, UPS or um, some other carrier. And some of the stores was like, well, we invested all these buildings in our own trucks. Why don't we just, we'll do that ourselves. Why don't we do it? And just one of those things where it was so, so obvious yet so brilliant at the same time because, they ended up doing it and they saved you know, a couple, I believe they saved like $400,000 per year. Like, and that adds up. <laughs> yeah, it all adds up. Absolutely. And what do you like to do outside of the office? Well, I have two sons. They're 14 and 13, so I like to spend as much time with them as possible. And they're, they're into completely different interests. Um, but I'm, I really get a lot of energy from the outdoors. So I was uh, originally from Colorado. So whenever I get a chance, I like to be up in the mountains like to do a lot of hiking, fly fishing, um, any type of fishing, really, uh, hunting. Uh, but I, f- I get most of my energy from being outdoors. It's so much fun. I used to go fishing every year uh, over in uh, Michigan, and it wasn't fly fishing. It was just uh, using a spoon and going yeah. after the pike up there. Oh, yeah. But fly fishing, that's I love just the, all the intricacies in that sport because it's, it's a lot more complicated than folks realize. Yeah, I think technologists would probably really get into fly fishing because it's very – you know, detail-oriented, the things you need to do, and you actually target the fish you're going after. You're not just, like, randomly throwing a lure out. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a fun sport. It's a lot more complicated than, like, I remember, I forget, what there's probably a special term for this, but when I was a kid, the very first iteration of fishing would be, you know, you have the cheap little pole, you put the worm on, throw it out there with a the bobber, and wait, you know, an hour to see the yep. bobber, bobber move up and down. Then you attempt to reel it in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fly fishing's like gone to the next level where you target the fish you want and, and try to get that fish to bite. And are you doing it um, from a standing position, actually in the lake? Or are you taking a boat out? What's your favorite methodology in that regard? Well, the easiest is if you do what they call float. And so you get in a boat and float down the river. Mm-hmm. And why that's the easiest is you have a lot less chance of getting your fly snagged on anything. When you're fishing in the river, as you cast, there's always a chance that your fly is going to catch on a tree behind you or a bush. Or, right. uh, so float fishing um, protects a lot of the inadequacies of a novice fisher like me. Oh, good idea. And then what's the favorite thing to go after in terms of is your favorite fish you like to go for? I'll fish for anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At our company, we actually do a, 
a big fishing event down on the Texas coast, and you know we're bay fishing down there, so we oh, we're catching uh, speckled trout, redfish, black drum. It's great. Sound delicious. Do you yeah. cook them up? Oh yeah, they're great. Oh, you cannot. Sometimes you just can't beat a fresh fish. So some of the best I've ever had was I forget the restaurant, but it looks like they took it right out of the ocean. It was the most delicious swordfish I've ever had. Oh yeah. I'm still I'm still searching for that taste again. Oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I need. I need to get out more and do some of those more things. It was definitely on my bucket list, so to say. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. But thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Topping, thanks for having me. Thanks, bud. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Don't forget to click like and subscribe. Friendly reminder, we're also on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies. Heck, tell anyone. Just stay safe. Have a great day. Talks.